I'm Heidi Zuckerman, and this is Conversations About Art. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hey everyone, I think you know that some of my most favorite guests on the podcast are artists, and we are going to have a series of artists as our next few guests. And as a way to kind of kick that off and to look back at our history, we are today republishing one of my favorite episodes, a really, really early episode. It was recorded in October of 2019 and aired in early 2020, an episode with the artist Seth Price. So this was originally released as episode number six, and now you get to hear it again. Usually for me, like rain and fall is kind of melancholic, but somehow, like last night, I flew in from Zurich to London and London here, and it was a little bit turbulent, and I usually hate that too, but somehow like the turbulence and the rain both felt like, I don't know, alivening to me. Mm -hmm. It's like driving off-road. Something like that, or just like, I don't know, something that usually is uncomfortable, feeling somehow... Like, not comfortable, but just, it's almost like, like a, like a pinch. Yeah, because it's just about time fall, like, finally comes around. Mm -hmm. I love this cool temperature. Yeah, I think it's good. So I wanted to talk to you about your practice in a really broad way, and then uh, circle around to talking about the painting show that's going to be at the museum, too. So, so... Mm -hmm. So when you're not making art, like right now, for example, um, what are you thinking about? Right now, meaning in this room right now? <laughs> yeah. What am I thinking Like getting about? micro and then getting, yeah, like pulling back from that. Yeah. Um, well, like, this room is all about art. Yes. We're sitting here in, you know, the office in a gallery and we're talking about art. So, and I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm like taxing the plane onto the runway to talk about art momentarily. Um, When I'm not thinking about art. Yeah, like what else are you interested in? Music. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I've got this SoundCloud of mixes that I've been making for the last two years. Just kind of, it's a way to be with music, kind of like um, let it pass through me, repackage it, send it back out for other people. So is that what plays when I've been in the studio? I mean, no, we're probably just playing whatever, random music. Um, Because I have noticed the music every time I've been there. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's, um, I I love all music. Um, So it's, it's just something that's always going there, yeah. So the SoundCloud uh, mixes that you're putting together, do they have titles? They do. Okay. Yeah, so. they're all, they're all the titles are all about an hour long. The playlist, 
with about 30 mixes now is called Soundtracks for Artists. Um, I mean, it was kind of a corny joke, but I just thought like, I know a lot of people who like to listen to music when they're in their studio, like banging their head on the wall. So um, I'm just messing around, like get interested in something, research it, listen to a lot of music, start throwing it together, mix it together into a single track, pile stuff on, on top of other stuff, you know, slow it down, cut it up. It's like, um, you know, music, when it became fully digital and streamable and everywhere, it's just like jumping into a bath and the value of it starts to approach zero um, in a certain way. So then it's trying to find a way to um, get back in into it and be with it um, in a way that's not about a streaming platform or about watching YouTube videos and YouTube playlists. Um, it's active. It activates me. It makes me like pick up the, the music in my hands and kind of smoosh it together and think about it. Um, and I'm not making my own music right now. Um, I do sometimes, but thinking about other things, but I still want to be in touch with it and like consume it and produce it and eat it and be with it. <laughs> well, you know, I think a lot about this because like I, I try and be present and notice things, right? And I remember being in Tel Aviv at Thanksgiving and hearing a song in the cafe that I walked over to to you know, buy breakfast for my family. You know, and then for me, the way that I could access it again was I remembered a few of the lyrics and then I could search the lyrics mm -hmm. and then figure out, you know, who, oh, yeah. right? Such um, a great tool. So, right. And then even this morning, you know, there was a version of, you know, I can't get no satisfaction. And then I was like, I think that's cat power, but I'm not sure. Oh, and yeah, then she does that song. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Right. So I listened to that, you know, a couple times this morning and that sort of set my mood for the day. Right. Um, because I don't have, I don't have an ability to necessarily remember like a, a musical line, uh, but I can remember the words because that's my point of access. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great album, that, that Cat Parallel. It takes me back to a long time ago, listening to that a lot, like 2000 or something. Yeah. And music, I feel like, like scent, you know, can transport me and I think other people like through time um, in a way that's more accessible sometimes for people than art is, you know, um, because it's somehow more visceral. Yeah. Music's like the best art form in a lot of ways, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're talking about like how readily accessible it is. And then that kind of um, turns into like a way of negating it. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you can, I could, let's say I never heard of Cat Power and I go home after this interview and instantly download everything she's ever recorded. Right. I mean, so the, there's no point in, I don't think in collecting music anymore, unless you're talking about, records, vinyl, vinyl packaged, packaged products. Um, but the music itself, um, 
now you, if everything's available, it makes you think about it differently. Um, I think that's what I was yeah. talking about. Um, and because I could then go home, get every album in about an hour or 10 minutes, depending on my less, I don't know. Um, and then kind of become an expert on it and, and post something tomorrow about the history of cat power. And, you know, I'm an expert now. So it's just that that's all so accelerated that it's kind of meaningless. So, I mean, that's why I started trying to take these musics and edit them together and make a new, a, a new um, thing out of them. It's like pat, letting it pass through me in a different way. Yeah. So do you, so you talked about how people can become like immediate experts on things and then that like kind of devalues it. Right. So, I mean, or that's how I took it. Mm -hmm. I, I took it on the idea that like, if it's that available, right. Um, then it's somehow for me is this kind of, uh, like false sense of, um, of expertise, right? It's like this kind of superficial, but, you know, broad-based and, you know, and, and I read something this morning where um, it was probably someone, you know, who makes their living as a consultant or something, but it said, like, if it takes me 30 minutes to do something, but I can do it in 30 minutes because of the 10 years that I spent learning how to do this, then, you know, I should be compensated based on the years, not the minutes, right? And so I was thinking... I was thinking about that and um, and my perspective is that if someone spent a long time thinking about something and working on something, I'm more interested in their opinion mm -hmm. than someone who, you know, has the capacity to download all of Cat Powers in an hour or 10 minutes and then have an opinion about it. What, what do you think about that? I mean, it's kind of tied to the idea of connoisseurship, mm -hmm. right? Um, or expertise. Well, on the one hand, you can say, I'm tempted to say that person, why not? Maybe they are an expert now. I'm, I, I don't want to make expertise some, I kind of hate the idea of expertise and of um, amateur versus professional. And, you know, I, I like the idea that art is the place where the category of amateur and professional really doesn't have any meaning anymore. And That's so, where I was going. you know, maybe, okay. maybe that person is an expert on cat power. Fine. I'd rather say that and devalue the idea of expertise than kind of like pull my hair out about, you know, how anybody can be an expert now. Cause fuck that. Right. Um, so, so devaluing the idea of expertise, like what's the benefit of that? Is it that it lets more people in? Is it that it makes it more open? Or is well, it... I mean, I'll keep just in terms of art, I think yeah. um, professional and amateur doesn't really have a place. I think you can be a professional, you can, of course, you can be a, um, you can, you can have a kind of professional level of, of technical skill at something particular, at lithography or something. Yeah. I'm not denying that, but um, that's not, that's not what makes art interesting for me. Uh -huh. Right. I mean, um, you know, with painting, it seems like on the one hand, um, you have to take responsibility for something because there's nothing that you must do when there's something, when you must do something, it's a way of avoiding responsibility, right? Like, <laughs> it, like fascism comes out of wanting to be led, yeah. but like, and, and then on the other hand with painting, it's, 
it seems to me that it's also of the utmost importance somehow not to care because if you care too much, I don't know, it's going to fuck up the painting. I, as far as I'm concerned, I, yeah. the things that I like, um, there is that, there's a feeling of, I don't know, I don't know where I'm going with that. Um, and I don't remember where the path started. What was the question? Well, it's a really, I mean, it's, I'm intentionally asking you these questions because this is my line of thinking on your painting. Uh, and so this is what I'm curious about. So do you, when you're making your paintings, are you certain about what's going to happen? Like what's your level of, of certainty or even like uh, no. interest in being certain? Yeah. Well, right. I don't, I don't think much knowledge about that or interest in that. No, it's, uh, I don't think making these, these things that you're calling paintings, which I, they are, I mean, yeah. they're wall hanging, well, I'm following images, you. blah, blah, yeah. blah. But I don't think that's different from making anything else. I, I think it's always, I just started thinking about this recently, maybe kind of like hitting middle age and wondering, wait, what am I doing? What is this? What am I doing? Maybe I'm not doing anything. That would be, that'd be scary. Um, but trying to understand that process of making and it, comes out of a kind of, um, the work comes out of a kind of way of thinking and, and experimenting and testing. And, um, it's produced by that. Mm -hmm. And it's not about making the thing that, that is the one thing. And I think you can make a painting. It seems like some people make paintings that way. And that's, that has a certain clarity to it. I admire that. Um, I think that I'm testing and, and, and testing a lot of different uh, approaches and materials. And, um, and that's why sometimes it would take, the art would take the form of, you know, a, a, a line of clothing. And sometimes it might take the form of something you can hang on the wall, but, um, but it, it just starts out as testing uh, materials and ideas. And uh, so, no, I don't know where it's going. So are you attached to what happens? You mean once it's done or? And the process too, you know? So, cause that's one of the things I've been thinking about, you know, is um, this idea of like kind of being open, right? And, and all these things for me are sort of circling around back to that. And yeah. so, um, and so this idea of being attached to the process or being attached to the outcome or attached to, anything and no i think like non-attachment absolutely and also defocused thinking defocused mind um mm. i was just having to kind of explain almost apologetically to some people who work with me in the studio that i often am kind of drifting around doing a lot of different things and it doesn't look like i'm doing much of anything and i had realized just over the course of the summer and the fall that's that's where i'm doing a lot of thinking, something will suddenly come out of that. You know, I'm picking up material and cutting it up and then I just walk over and do a, a sketch or then I'm just kind of on the internet and then I'm reading something and it, it, it's pretty distracted or distracted looking. It is distracted. It's a form of, it's kind of a defocused way of working and thinking, but I don't want to be interrupted because then it, it all falls apart. 
um, it is a way of trying to circle around and make myself available for an impulse or something. Um, but yeah, there is non-attachment. Once, once I don't, I'm not attached to the result or even to the piece. Really, it's hard for me to um, to hold on to these things very tightly. Um, so. I'm super interested in that idea because I haven't thought about it in that way or heard about it in that way. This, like the defocused, you know, because what you're describing sort of sounds like what um, I have known to be described as like being in the flow, you know, but you're almost describing it as like the opposite of that. Does that resonate for you? Yeah, I think so. Say more. So, so I first understood the idea of like flow state or being in the flow, like skiing, right? Um, and so often for me, it happens like when I'm physically moving, you know, or being in nature, and um, and I can pinpoint it back to skiing, which is something that I traditionally have to really pay attention when I'm doing because I don't think I'm that good. I mean, I think. I've been told that I'm better than I think I am, you know, so, but I've historically really concentrated on it. And then a few times when I sort of stopped thinking about it and just did it, then it was like floating, you know, or, um, and, and so it has, it has like a mental, but physical kind of sensation too. And, um, but mm-hmm. I'm sort of hearing about that as I'm thinking about you and having been in your studio and, and understanding what it would mean for you to like move from one place to the other and pick things up and put them down. And, and I'm curious about that, that process, right? Yeah, um, I'm not putting my shoulder to the wheel and like trying, no. to, um, trying to sketch out the archaeological dig and then proceed method- methodically. It's, um, I, mean, I think I've tried that over the years and it's, it's counterproductive for me. So, but it's also like, that's how I've explained like being in the Met, for example, like where you're intending to go and look at, um, say an exhibition of modernism, but then you see like armor, you know, and you're like, Hey, I'm going to just go over there and like check out a couple of pieces or, Mm -hmm. you know, where you sort of allow yourself to, I don't know, have an expanded viewpoint. Right. Um, so that things kind of can catch your attention and, and take you over there. Right. Or, or that's what like reading the newspaper used to be when you would kind of flip through, mm-hmm. right? Like that physicality of like allowing your mind to sort of be, it's almost like your eyes are sort of half open, you know? Um, yeah. So there is a filter. It's not like there's not a filter. You're not talking about like a totally unaware state. You're talking about like something that's open. Right? It's open. Yeah, absolutely. I think in, for me to be open means to be able to float. To be, and that means having space and time to float. And everything in this culture militates against that. The one that you and I are in mm-hmm. here in New York City and in the West, in the social media culture, um, in, in kind of capitalist culture. So that's like a luxury to be able to do that, to kind of like carve out that, that space and time. So, and you were talking about it with your assistants because they, 
like wanted your attention. Or yeah, I realized I wasn't. Or... I it was only I had to be fair to tell people around me like I'm sorry. This is uh, this is the way I work, and it doesn't look like much. It looks like I'm. <laughs> it looks like I'm uh, just kind of wandering around, like scratching my head or something. Or, but um, actually, it's I'm trying to be. I'm trying to put myself in a place where I can follow my interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm interested in. I guess that was sort of my first question too. Is you know, it's like, what do you think about? You know, so. I like to float. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a few years ago, I I said to um, like our curatorial staff at the museum, you know, they were putting forth shows, and I don't know, they just weren't very interesting, you know. And and I said like, I want to know. I want to know, like, what you're really interested in. Like, you know, when you can't sleep in the middle of the night, like, what do you get up and Google? You know, like, what are you kind of, like, secretly obsessed with that you, you know, wouldn't want anyone to know that you are focused on, right? Um, like, that that's what I'm interested in, you know? I'm interested in those things that, like, you don't really even know why you're interested in them, but they just kind of keep coming back up for you. Mm-hmm. And I, and I said, like, do a show about that, you know? How'd that work out? Well, better in terms of, like, the generation of ideas. And I am, like, if I was to be asked a question about, like, what makes me, like, most sad in the world, <laughs> I would say that it is, like a profound lack of curiosity in so many people that I interact with. Um, And like, if I could do one thing to make the world better, it would be to help people somehow be more curious. Um, And I feel like art can do that. Um, I wonder if curator comes out of the same. Maybe. maybe. (laughs) Or if it's more like curare, isn't that like that poison (laughs) that you dip your arrow in? Yeah. I mean, they're both good, right? So, um, I mean, it was it was good to try and like push, you know, in that way. And and interestingly, you know, I've worked with like high school students that you know have like to help them, like train them to be curators, kind of. And and somehow in the last few years, they've been a little more receptive to this, and they've gotten better. But like a few years ago, um, it was probably at its lowest. But that's kind of one of my meters for the health of society, you know, is like how curious people are. So, and in this one instance that I'm thinking about, like what the person was interested in was interesting, but then when they tried to make it into a show, it wasn't a very good show. Um, like maybe it was, but, but it was a good exercise, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Um, and I'm interested in things that fail as much as in things, when things succeed, yeah. you know? I mean, I like imperfection. Yeah. I think it's somehow more true. But I also like truth. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, when you've made fashion, let's I, let's talk about that specifically. Mm-hmm. What were you interested in when when you did that? What were your hopes around that? Mm. Well, I think in, in like 2010 or so, I just had started to notice kind of like this kind of upswing in attention around street style and hashtag menswear and all this crap. That was interesting to me. How did it happen? I think 
Well, Tim Hamilton, this designer, had asked me to do a video for a presentation of his, and that wasn't interesting to me. But, but then I thought, well, making clothes might be interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in making things, and I, I don't know anything about this. I wasn't thinking of it as art yet. Mm-hmm. So I met with him. And, and then at the same time, this is in 2011, early 11 maybe, I was trying to think of what to do for Documenta in 2012, a year later. And Carolyn Christoph Bakarjev was basically asking me, what's your spring, summer 2012 collection going to be? It kind of hit me that I was working with all this, these kind of garment patterns and talking to Tim about it. And I thought, well, I guess I could just kind of collapse that. Um, And at the same time, separately for some years then, I'd been interested in envelopes. I don't know why, but something about this idea that you take a flat two-dimensional square piece of paper, a rectangular piece of paper, and through a little folding and adhesive, suddenly you, you go from two dimensions to three dimensions. And now you have a box, basically. And then into that box, you put another folded piece of paper. And I don't know what to do with that, but it, something about it was just kind of was tickling me. And so I started hmm. making my own envelopes and and then ripping them apart and scanning that and, and then thinking about liner patterns and collecting envelopes. And, and then when I started working on, on garment production and thinking about how garments are made, it was very similar because a jacket is a square flat piece of material that's then folded to contain something and jackets have liner patterns. And then somehow it all just kind of came together and in, Let's see, fall of 2011, we did a a menswear presentation for New York Fashion Week, Um, rented a store, uh, kind of an empty storefront um, below Canal Street. And and that turned into eventually a whole bunch of sculptures and, you know, clothing, a clothing line um, for Documenta. Which I saw and was at the fashion presentation. Or the, you know, oh, you were? Oh, cool. Yeah, I was there, yeah. Uh, but it's so interesting because, um, I mean, I knew about the envelopes and whatever, but I never thought about the idea of like, and I, and I, think, I think a lot about rappers. Um, like that's one of the things that I'm interested in. Like is Young like, Thug and like Future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, with an, just an R and also with a W. But, um, but... But I hadn't really thought about this idea of like layering and this like the thing that's like inserted in something else. Um, you know, I think more about like the exterior than like about what's inserted. So, and that's interesting to think about like jacket, you know, shirt, jacket. Uh, huh. That's, yeah. I'm, so I guess what I should say is I've been more interested like in the container, right? Um, so. Hmm. Well, it was a way to, you know, the, in that context, in the context of art, the what's printed on the liner became, for I think some people who looked at it, the content. Yeah. Both because it was literally the contents of this jacket or envelope soft sculpture made out of fabric. You know, you open it up and there it is, but also because the white canvas of the of the 
of the trench coat or of this sculpture on the wall, the white canvas is, is blank. It doesn't give you much. I mean, it's the blank canvas. And then on the inside, they were like, oh, look at the, these patterns. Mm-hmm. And um, that was something to talk about, mm-hmm. um, especially if it goes into the realm of language with repeated words or, um, yeah. But, it, but at the same time, it was, in a way, it was more, you, I mean, for me, sometimes it felt like there was, it was more blank. There's less information to the right. repeated pattern than there is in, in this construction of, of the garment around it. So uh, I mentioned when, when I arrived that um, I was just, you know, having dinner with Peter Fishley in Zurich, and he, at dinner, was describing uh, a story that you wrote or um, an essay, uh, and he described, really, the narrative. And I, I haven't read it, um, so I need to do that. But he said it was, you know, about an artist... And then maybe it was you, but maybe it wasn't you. And... Oh, it was, this, it was this novel. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about that? About that book? Yeah. Fuck Seth Price. Is that book. what it's called? Yeah. Okay. It's called. <laughs> I'm like, should I say it? Um, what could I tell you about it? I mean, I guess I'm interested in asking you what the narrative is, since I just heard Peter kind of describe what he thought the narrative was? Yeah, it's like about, um, let's see, in 2013 or something, I, I wanted to write something in a more serious, focused way. You know, I've written essays over the years, but um, it's really hard to clear that space and time again to, to do something in a focused way. I mean, it felt like I'm going to take off a year, basically, to learn a new skill. Right. Is that what you did? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, yeah, like, let go uh, the person who was working for me and, and uh, said no to a whole bunch of exhibitions and uh, just was kind of reporting for duty to, like, a room to try to sit down and write something, reading a lot of fiction. Um, got into auto fiction, as, as it was, you know, being called. Um, anyway, at the end of the year, I, yeah, I had this book, so it's, it, it, but it's fiction. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens in it? Oh man. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You'll have to read it. It's yeah. It starts, it starts with a painter Mm -hmm. um, having some issues. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's probably, it's not a really good narrative. Like, honestly, it's, (laughs) Well, so the way Peter described it, it it ends in a way where, uh, well, the way Peter describes it, you know, I, I'm so I have been thinking a lot about um, Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey, and you know how most, uh, well, pretty much all Hollywood films and you know most all of Western mythology, you know, is kind of the same story. You know, um, where you head out into the um, into the wilderness, you know, however you define that, right, to in search of of something, um, and then there's you know your burning of the boats moment, right, where you say no to the burning you know, of the boats moment, the burning of the boats moment, yeah. So you know where you basically like deny wherever 
you were before and, and oh, like kick down the ladder of you kind of thing? just, okay. you know, like, I mean, I could tell you like my story, right. Using the hero's journey. Um, and my burning of the boats moment was, you know, when I was in college and told my parents, I wasn't going to law school. Um, and that I was going to try and pursue a, a moment of art and, okay. you know, so, was, and then, you know, you head off and you're the furthest away from home and, you know, and they're, um, their adversaries and then their guides, you know, and, um, and then you get this knowledge and then you return home a changed person and hopefully you share it. So, so I've been thinking a lot about that as it applies to my life and everyone else's, you know, lives, but some people are more aware of it. Some people are less, but as he was describing, uh, the narrative of your story, uh, at the end or the narrative of your novel, um, at the end, what he said is that, Basically, the character, the protagonist comes back around to, you know, there being nothing left to do, but look at the paintings. Um, but that yeah. was a good thing. Hmm. And so, uh, so I was curious so about that's, that. That's how Peter interpreted it, huh? <laughs> yeah. That's very interesting. Okay, Peter. Yeah. Um, so that there was like, you know, that there was a journey and, mm-hmm. you know, that yeah. there was like a denial of, you know, the past and... And then a, a catharsis, um, and then a return. So the hero's journey is about the return. Okay. Do you know about this other narrative form, which I'm trying to? I hope you do, because I can't really re- remember it. But I had read about this circular narrative as a pattern that was, I think, an ancient pattern, and even before what we know of as the novel had kind of congealed. I think. There were many circular narratives mm-hmm. in folklore and things um, where, if I'm remembering correctly, it's, it starts more or less in the middle and then kind of circles around to another part and then back again. Um, and then I, I like kind of read something about this and then, and then never like followed up on it. And I have no idea what I'm talking about, but it's, it's in the back of my head somewhere. Huh. So... I don't know specifically about that, but I think the um, the art of storytelling is uh, something I've been thinking a lot about and how exhibition making is a type of storytelling. Yeah. And what kind of relationships can be made between exhibition making as a form of storytelling and other forms of storytelling. So I think what you're talking about is is almost like the oral tradition Right. Um, Where people, you know, kind of stood around a campfire, you know, or or not a campfire, but like whatever the the hearth was right in the society where people, you know, had warmth and food and community. um, And that's how they would um, understand who they are. Right. And that's how they would communicate to their community, both elders. Right. And youngers. Do you think Um, about exhibition making in those terms? mm -hmm. I remember this. A curator once told me we were putting together a show and he said, you have about eight seconds to grab their attention when they come through that door in that first room. And like, it was basically, you know, there's this, the cold open in documentaries. They talk about, you just like, you just jump in the story because you got to get people's attention so they don't flip the channel. Exactly. Um, And I wonder there's, that's like jumping. That's like this, is that like the circular idea? I almost don't want to say it, but like, that's like you jump in. You grab their attention and then you can like back up a little bit. That's right. And then you go forward again. Like it's not in fact like quite so much about like beginning, middle and end 
um, or you're going to just lose them. That's exactly right. And for me, that's also how I, I, I pretty much only read fiction for pleasure. Um, I mean, I read a ton of nonfiction, like for work or whatever. So, and for me, it's the first five words of any novel. And Mm -hmm. if I'm not good and really like, Hmm, like if I haven't been captured in the first five words done. Right. So, but yeah, that's how I think about it too. And, and it's, it's true. And, and actually viewing an exhibition is a circular thing too, but you have to kind of have a plunge, you know? Um, and, uh, so. Lunch. Mm-hmm. Lunch pool. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a lot of people don't do it that way. and But I think there's a real art to exhibition making. Yeah. So. All right. <laughs> Let's do it next month. Exactly. Well, that's what I do when, you know, like I'm standing around and looking at it from all these different angles, you know, because like the weakest part is, um, is always like, where things can fall apart, right? I want to see you like burn the boats so. when we get into that, <laughs> when we start hanging the show. So um, talk, if you would, about um, the skin works. Uh-huh. And I don't know. I, I want to hear a little bit about like the mechanics of them, you know, like of making them? skin. Yeah, sure. And yeah. Uh, and the skin? how and yeah and the how mm-hmm. you want, want me to do beginning middle and end storytelling I kind of do all right um, I guess what 2015 mm-hmm. or maybe in 14 actually the funny thing is when I wrote that book uh, that novel there's a part in it when this protagonist is thinking a lot about skins in the in the way that we talk about um, uh, skins for apps and um, switchable uh, phone covers and um, uh, skins in video games, this kind of fluidity of, of, of 3d rendering. And, and I think maybe I started thinking about skins in that context and, and then, um, but immediately skin plunges you into a whole other world, which is very charged, right? Mm-hmm. And there's something, I guess I was, I didn't know where I was going with it, but I was interested in the idea that skin is is totally familiar and banal, mm-hmm. therefore, for everybody in the world has skin, but at the same time, it's totally charged and um, full of meaning. It's like empty and full at the same time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you, if you look at, if you look at your forearm, um, there's a lot of information, right? And if you want to talk about it in contemporary terms, there's a lot of data if you were to take a, an image, mm-hmm. but at the same time, there's, there's very little, it, it tell it, there's a lot there. And there's also, it, it becomes kind of bland and abstract. Mm-hmm. So, this, this is this was all interesting to me, mm-hmm. um, and then I was thinking about human skin is is the skin of a human. It's a person, so it's a portrait. It's very intimate, mm-hmm. but it's also anonymous if you decontextualize it. So it's both again, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's humans. So it's it's beautiful, and there's also something repulsive if you think about, you know, it's like body parts. Mm-hmm. It's it's mm-hmm. um, you know, if you go in, you're looking at pores and sweat. And, mm-hmm. Um, and 
hairs and things that make people uncomfortable, but that's all stuff that's also in a different context can be fascinating and sexy and beautiful. So all these kind of things that pull in two directions at once, that's something I'm interested in in general, or it's, that's a clinical way of saying it, interested in it. Just, it, it's, um, it's like a hot spot for, for me in terms of like, um, it, it's pulling me in that direction. Yeah. Um, you know, with these early vacuum forms with the, the body parts in plastic, there's something that's ugly about them. And I remember people at the time thinking they were quite ugly. And then there's something also beautiful and classical about it. Mm-hmm. And I think over time they became a little more classical and less, less ugly and less kind of brutal in terms of, you know, a fist or a breast in plastic. And I like that pulling in both directions. And, mm-hmm. and I guess I, you know, I keep on getting, coming back to again and again to the body and my work, although it's not, it's not such an overt theme that people talk about it, but it's in, it's in work after work over the years. So I think there's something there. So I was thinking about skin and um, at the same time, you know, again, I was, I was thinking about material and materiality, which it's like with the fashion show, I was thinking about a bunch of different things at once and the materiality of, of clothing and putting things together and playing with all these different um, fabric scraps and trim and buckles and zippers. And at the same time, I had this other thing in my mind about envelopes And in this case, I was thinking, I was kind of, I was thinking around skin somehow. And at the same time, I was thinking a lot about printing and printing technology and substrates. And I was looking at images reproduced in the city as I walk around on the sides of buses and now, you know, a hundred feet tall on the side of buildings. And they're everywhere. But when you walk up close, they fall apart into total garbage because it's low resolution and it doesn't have to be, it, it can afford to look like shit when you're a foot away. It yeah. doesn't care. Right. Um, and I started thinking about art world images, which are often quite high res, very beautiful, but they're relatively small. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about, well, you could probably make a large scale image with a lot of data with a lot of resolution. That's just like a data crunching issue, right? Like, why can't we just do that? But I haven't seen that and I'd like to see that. So, and then somehow at one point I thought, oh, right. Skin has all the data that I'm thinking about. And so then I thought, well, maybe I'll try to take these very, first I thought, oh, I'll just scan it. But in fact, a flatbed scanner is not made for this Mm -hmm. for a bunch of reasons I won't go into, but you can't get the image I was looking for. And then I thought there must be a walk-in scanner for video games or something. And that doesn't have the resolution. And then I thought, okay, I'll hire a photographer, which I did, who had a, you know, he had a $50,000 camera he owned or rented or something and brought it to the studio and we hired models and tried to make that work for a couple of weeks. And um, it wasn't what I, it wasn't it. Um, and eventually after a couple of months, we found these uh, engineers who had a startup in California outside San Fran that had invented this kind of, um, computer controlled rig with a robot arm and a camera that they were using to shoot still objects. And they had just developed this tool and they were basically hoping somebody would come along and buy it or, you know, that the government would like decide to use it for all of their whatever, like bullet forensics or who knows. They, yeah. And so they were kind of sitting around and I came over and 
trained on it and then rented it and they shipped it out to New York to the studio. And um, we had to f- put it together. For, it took like a week or two to figure it all out. Um, they had this kind of custom built computer set up with like a whole bunch of different software packages to put the image together. Um, and then we uh, advertised for models on Craigslist at first. That was a kind of gnarly process because it turned <laughs> out like if you're asking it, you people need to lie down under the machine for six hours or so um, because wow. it takes if you're taking a photographs of a patch of skin that's like eight inches by three inches, it's taking. I don't know, 30,000 photographs or something. Amazing. Um, and then it squashes those all together through the software processing we would do to take like a week into this nice seamless image. It basically does what Google Maps does by taking photographs of terrain and stitching them together and ironing out the problems and taking care of redundancies. Um, and then we hired a fashion retoucher to go through and kind of like do the final um, the final like sharpening of that motherfucker so we could print it. And then um, that's the process. The, the models, um, hmm. we were advertising for, uh, I'm trying to get the wording. It didn't work at first. We kept on getting people who were kind of, um, well, I realized it sounded worrisome. We were advertising for people to sit for six hours so we could take photographs of a small portion of their skin, (laughs) um, age, race, and gender, not important. Um, and it just sounded shady. I can't remember. We, we, we ended up tweaking the language (laughs) and ultimately getting some people. And then I also was looking out on top of that for, I wanted like a, basically a, somebody who had been surfing, who was, um, in their forties because I wanted somebody who we're getting people in their twenties and this, their skin is just so much like, has seen like less wear and tear. Yeah. And, yeah. and I thought, okay, yeah. like nobody's applying. Who's like a little bit older. Yeah. Um, and let's just make it a surfer or something so that we get like some sun damage yeah, exactly. and some like, you know, some yeah. little like, um, scars. And we yeah. got that. We got this guy, um, who was great. Bob, Bob was awesome. <laughs> Total surfer. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about, let's talk about our show. Okay. So, um, how are you thinking about it? How are you describing it? Well, I'm describing it when people ask about it as it's, it's a show that you put together. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we're working on it together, but yeah. impetus came from you. Mm-hmm. You were interested in the hand mm-hmm. in my work mm-hmm. because it's there, but it, is maybe overlooked because people talk about materials and distribution and ideas and whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, that you've put together works from about 10 years ago, roughly, mm-hmm. more or less, these not paintings mm-hmm. with some more recent works from the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I mean, I think it's, I hadn't thought about those works in relation to each other until this, but there are a lot of weird correspondences and echoes yeah and the name of the show no technique i don't know um that's part of it i guess i think so have you seen this draft of the poster that i was working on or or maybe i don't know if we sent it around i haven't seen it yet okay i know that it's happening but i haven't seen it okay so um talk about 
Talk a little bit about the knot works. Mm-hmm. So, and um, yeah, describe for our listener what they look like. Hmm. Well, they are plastic relief surfaces. They're vacuum formed. It's a technique I've used for, um, well, I haven't now for a while, but I was using it at in 2004 through 2010 or something like that. Um, and vacuum forming is an industrial process that I think dates back to after World War II. Um, it essentially, the, the, the small scale version is you would take a sheet of plastic, um, heat it up, and you can actually do this. You can take a very small sheet of plastic, heat it up with something like a hair dryer until it gets soft. And then um, suck it down around an object. So the way to do it without a vacuum is to thermoform it, which is to heat it up and then mold it around something like, like you could mold it around your fist. It might be a little hot, but um, you get an impression of your fist. It's basically a kind of printmaking technique. And when you add the vacuum into the molding, it means that, to use our example, you would heat up the plastic, put your fist down on a bed, a piece of steel that has a lot of holes in it and the holes are sucking air down like a vacuum cleaner. Um, So it is not just molding the plastic, it's actively sucking it down around your fist. So you get a much better impression of your fist. Um, And on a larger scale, people use that process to make plastic packaging for like a toothbrush or a box of chocolates or a bottle of cologne that comes in a little plastic bed that's exactly shaped for that bottle of cologne. Um, and even in larger applications like um, the plastic kind of glowing tops of taxis where the advertisements go are mm-hmm. made in a similar process. It's a very thick piece of plastic that is sucked down around a mold the size of that uh, little taxi top. And then you get this piece of plastic that is perfect for the size and shape. And I started doing this forming and, and molding process around casts of human body parts um, for my first show at Rena Spalling's. And then I moved on to, I did a, a large flower. I did a masks. Um, I did a, a bomber jacket. And then the problem is I would have to cast all these objects which is this laborious, annoying, for me, annoying process, because you can't put an actual bomber jacket or item of clothing into the press because the pressure and the heat and the suction would completely flatten it out. You'd lose all definition. You'd get like a blob. Mm -hmm. So if you want to have this nice bomber jacket, you have to go through this process, it turns out, I had to kind of teach myself this stuff in the studio. Just take the bomber jacket, cut off the back so it lies entirely flat. It's already just a relief of a jacket. Um, Build it a little cardboard uh, bed with walls. Um, Paint it carefully with resin to make the surface entirely hard including if you want, you know, the zipper or any wrinkles, you have to paint under the zipper, you have to paint under the wrinkles. Um, you have to fill in any areas that have an undercut. 
you have to kind of like fill that in with resin so that the general form of the thing is more like a pyramid without any edges. Then you have to pour um, this molding compound over the top, um, wait till it cures, peel it off, turn it over, and then you pour into that um, plaster or concrete or whatever you're gonna make your mold out of. I tried plaster at first, took it to the vacuum pouring machine and the pressure cracked all the edges. So then I had to go back and fill it with uh, resin. And finally, you know, the resin worked and I was able to make a cast, but this just sucked. I yeah. thought like there's no way to improvise or, or something. So I started throwing ropes into the bed of the machine because you could just go there and throw them on there and get a cast and an impression. It doesn't matter if the rope gets singed at the edge or falls out, like who gives a shit about a rope? Yeah. Um, you'll use another rope next time. I, I couldn't actually do it myself because um, I was barely allowed on the factory floor. They kind of made an exception, but they certainly weren't going to allow me to, to reach into the machine, which is like this insane 19th century um, gasoline-powered, like, giant, wow. um, kind of, like, shuddering, like, giant carousel, like, like suddenly swinging around and missing your head, and 12-foot trench. It takes five hours to heat it up and power it up. Um, so I was actually happy not to be reaching in there. So the guy who operated the machine was responsible for all the, 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 the rope toss. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So anyway, you get these rope, these impressions of rope. Yeah. Um, and then at a certain point I realized I could use transparent plastic and, and then, um, paint on the front and the back, or I could pre-print the plastic and you'd get this print on the front, which then gets deformed by the rope. And then you can hang it up in your studio and paint the back in the, in the clear areas. And then you can mount, a, mount that on uh, a printed piece of gator foam or over fabric. So you have a lot of layers to play with. Yeah. And it's, it was like slowly over by like 2010 or something, it, I'd kind of backed into, I guess, what you could call painting. Yeah. Yeah. So when we were um, working on the installation with the models, we were making these different relationships between the works, which were largely formal. You know, there were colors that we saw kind of repeating themselves or forms, or um, we were looking for kind of pattern and variation. And um, are those things that you were thinking about when you were making them, or is that something that happens like in the exhibition making? Correspondence making, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was. I was just testing things. You know, yeah. there was a time when I was doing tiny, freehand sketches with a pencil, and mm -hmm. then scanning them. Mm -hmm. You know, from a two two inch by three inch sketch would would become like an eight foot tall, print, mm -hmm. and with all the kind of irregularities and the texture of the paper, and and so that that form you know, one group of work. And then at the end there in 2000 and whatever it was, I, I was already into this pattern and envelope and mm -hmm. fabric. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. some of those pieces have printed fabric behind them from mm -hmm. that would later show up in the envelope series. Mm -hmm. um, it was whatever was kind of passing through my head or my studio at the moment I was doing those works. Yeah. And there's also a kind of delay because I had to do the vacuum forming portion at the schedule that the factory wanted because they don't like to work with artists. They barely wanted to work with me. Mm -hmm. For them, artist means 
you can't pay. You're annoying, like this annoying fly around their heads while they're trying to like do their work. You don't really know what the outcome's gonna be. They like predictability. You know, there are a lot of reasons they didn't really want to do it. They kind of, as a favor, this guy like squeezed me in or something. Yeah. So I had to form all the pieces. So I had printed a whole bunch of random stuff and then formed everything. And then I had months to play around with these formed uh, plastic surfaces, by which time, like maybe my interest was somewhere else. Yeah. And then, you know, painting on the back of it comes out of a different set of concerns. And then mounting it a year later on another substrate comes out of a different set of concerns. Yeah. 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 And I, I think that's, I think that's where the um, interest in exhibition making comes to, you know, because it's, it's an opportunity to kind of step back and look at everything that was done, you know, in the moment, right. And relationally, uh, and then figure out like, Oh, what, what were some of these kind of intentional or unintentional um, elements that, that, um, happened again and again, yeah. you know? And so, and yeah. then is there a, a, a new story um, to tell that, that maybe, you know, had always been there, but not acknowledged or maybe hadn't been there, but now with, you know, the opportunity of distance, right? Yeah. Um, appears. So, and the new paintings that are in the show, uh, I remember seeing some of them here and just, I don't know, kind of having my mind blown, honestly. You know, like I, I stopped by the opening and and um, I think I was like, I really wanted to see the show, but I had to be somewhere else. And, and it just like stopped me, you know, like I, I had an intended course of my evening, you know, and associated time allowed for everything. And, um, and then I got here and I was like, what? are these like what is happening here <laughs> and um and that's yeah um and i'd looked at the i'd looked at the book of the rope works and and i'd been looking at, at some of the skin works and um i'm still not totally sure what's happening there and that's what turns me on that's what gets me like super excited about them yeah, I'm glad to hear that because that was on my mind, was trying to make these objects where it wasn't clear how they were made and it's not clear what they are, what they or depict, what you're, looking at. what you're looking at. Yeah. I mean... And the why. That interests me too. Yeah. I mean, it, they were all... There were materials that were interesting to me that that caught that caught me somehow, and there were, uh, you know, the contents, the imagery caught me somehow, and um, and yeah, I think you know, thinking about this title, no technique for the show. I mean, I don't like to highlight the techniques. Mm -hmm. Actually, there's a lot of technique in the work, and sometimes I'm afraid that there's that I'm that it's too much, too intoxicating for me. Mm -hmm. But, and that's maybe why it's important for me to not make it available to people. Like the calendar paintings, mm -hmm. you know, I, to this day, people think I downloaded them or <laughs> scanned them from somewhere. There's this, you know, and in fact, I made every part of it. Yeah. You know, and that's sometimes surprising, but it. You know, that was something that I didn't want to 
kind of talk about or like the silhouette pieces, you know, I think people assumed that it was, this is a material that I, that existed in the world that you can buy this kind of like rare wood veneer behind acrylic. But no, this is like a long R and D process yeah. to make it, to make it something that just looks like it always existed mm-hmm. because I don't want it to be about, you know, there this, these like skin light boxes. I don't want to like talk in the, you know, in the, in the t- title date medium about like how it was a computer controlled drone camera or right, something right. like that's just beside the point. Yeah. Um, and in these paintings, I, I don't want it to be all about the process. I'd rather have it be this thing that like, that suddenly shows up where you're just like, what the fuck am I looking at? Yeah. Right. That was exactly and, my experience. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I mean, it kind of circles back to where our conversation started too. Like, I like things that I don't understand. I like kind of being uncomfortable, right? That's why, you know, I didn't mind the turbulence yesterday or the rain today, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Yeah, it's like a new experience, right? Yeah, it makes you feel alive, you know? And I, I think somehow this, somehow it's all connected. Somehow the idea of maybe making space to, so, so I, recently learned this term, um, cottywomple. Do you know it? Cottywomple? Yeah. It's Is that like something a, to do with like burning boats? It's related probably. So um, it's a, an old English term and the idea is to um, move purposely towards an unknown destination. Uh-huh. And there's- But with purpose? With purpose. Huh. Uh, Wample. Mm-hmm. And, and I, the idea that I like about it is, you know, not being attached to where you're going to end up. Um, but, and like moving with purpose and intention uh-huh. through the present. That's an interesting word. Well, it seems like, um, you know, I don't like this is maybe left field a little bit, but I, I realized I can't stand um, quantification, mm-hmm. especially abstract quantification. And partly it's, I, my brain doesn't work that way. I don't, I don't have a head for calendars, for schedules, mm-hmm. dates, mm-hmm. For, for money amounts. It's just, it's like way over my head. Um, but, and there's something about, you know, value therefore like that um i think it makes me very uncomfortable to be assigned value and i don't only mean finance monetary value as an mm-hmm. artist or, mm-hmm. i mean that also also kind of can be very of course um strange for an artist but even just value in a critical sense art historical sense meaning mm-hmm. um that you're being written into something Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not alone in this. I think a lot of artists probably have an issue with this, but um, the idea that things will be used and made useful is, you know, it somehow seems linked to the idea that, you know, profitability, profitability comes out of predictability, mm-hmm. right? The mm-hmm. more that you can predict a behavior, the more money you can make from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
therefore, the more things start to um, repeat themselves and, and have a certain similarity, the more they can be rewarded. Um, where's, what does this have to do with Cottywomble? What was, what was it called? <laughs> Cottywomple. Cottywomple? Yeah. It just sounds like, like, a, yeah. like a nun's wimple and a like codpiece, <laughs> kind of like, like jammed up together I in like the fetish museum. Exactly. It does sound like that. But the, the idea is, uh, yeah, to be comfortable with the uncertainty. You know, I mean, to just be like fully present uh, and, you know, moving towards an uncertain outcome, uh, but or being unattached to wherever it ends up. Sounds good. Sounds like some, um, honestly, it's like on the wall in the green tea coffee shop. Just saying. <laughs> That's the definition. <laughs> no, like the, you know, moving purposely towards the, towards uncertainty. Yeah. Well, That's and on, yeah, it's, uh, I'll send you the exact definition, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's, um, yeah, purposely moving towards an unknown destination or something like that. Mm-hmm. So. Which is kind of cool. The thing I like about it also is that, like, I don't know. So oftentimes if people, like, don't know where they're going, like, they'll go slowly. So circling back to, like, skiing or or hiking or whatever, it's like if people don't know, like, where they're supposed to go, then often they'll, like, slow everything down. Right. You know? Um, Which maybe is prudent, right? But I like the idea of just, like, going for it. Yeah. You know, just like true, except I would with say, momentum. I would say that speed is also part of the contemporary mandate and speed is right. often the enemy of art. True in all those ways, but speed also, um, for shortened, um, amounts of time is also, I think a release. Yeah. And a way to kind of get lost. And that also, I think, can relate to your unfocused. Yeah. Yeah. And all those, I mean, all those um, not paintings came out of like period, periods of speed, like a burst of speed when I had to vacuum form all these things and I wasn't even dropping the ropes. And then there's a slowdown. And then there's a period of speed when I booked this uh, big ventilated painting studio. And then there's a slowdown. Yeah. Um, I like all that. I like uneven, uneven development. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So I'm and not then, talking and, about yeah, like, and you did, then you just make some bullshit, right? Like I'm just like, this piece sucks. And then some other pieces where you, you thought it sucked and 10 years pass and you're like, oh, that's the good one. Actually, right, right, that's right. like the weird one. Right. Um, I want to ask you maybe just one more question. Um, you were talking earlier about um, things that that you'd like to look at. Like you're talking about like making something that you thought or making something that you thought you'd like to see. Um, oh, yeah, right. And I just wanted to circle back to that idea because yeah. it's kind of beautiful. 
And I just want to... I mean, that's like... Yeah, sometimes just it's like, this is super corny, but just got a picture in my head. And, uh, you know, I saw... I saw like... I think I saw... I was making these calendars, these calendar paintings, and then suddenly I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have like an ass pushing out through this calendar? And then later I thought like, wait, did I just, is this like just some Gober thing I saw? But anyway, it like set me off on the, in the whole vacuum forming journey. And then, yeah, the silhouette thing, I thought, oh, I just, I, I'm gonna go get some of that, uh, some of that wood behind plastic. I'll just go to the store and get some. And then it turned out that didn't exist. So I had to like make that. And yeah, with the, with the light boxes also. Yeah, just like trying to make something happen. Is it the idea of like, what if, like, what if this happened or? Um, no, it's more like just in, just like this, um, just getting obsessed with, uh, with something that pops in your head. Um, don't even know why. It's, it's not a what if, it's like more stupid than that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in today. Our next guest is the artist Robert Nava. He and I talk about how he makes work and what he hopes people find in it. It's fascinating, and I can't wait to share it with you. Conversations About Art is part of HiZ.Art, a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was produced by Hallie Zander. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every other Tuesday with new episodes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>